Promise no promises. Seeing into the heart of things. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series. Seeing into the heart of things, earth and equality within indigenous and ancestral knowledges. This collection of episodes emerged from the Master Symposium in fall, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, in collaboration with Culturescapes 2021 Amazonia. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to discussing indigenous thought, decolonial feminisms, and the political possibilities of the mythic imagination. Certain questions will preoccupy us. How do indigenous cosmologies create forms for resistance? How does the Western imaginary of the Amazon from its roots in racial capitalism to its corporate tech paternalistic present, cloud our understanding of how its people and non-human spirits narrate themselves. How do ecological and decolonial practices find their form in the visual and oral matrices of indigenous narratives across the world? Since the long 16th century, the organization of the world has found its hegemonic form in hierarchies of power and possession, between those who exploit and expropriate and those who are exploited and whose lives, lands and resources are expropriated. This is not the past, nor a function of ideology only. If the projected supremacy of one form of life over all others is only made possible by manifold forms of violence, one of these forms remains the invention and constant reinvention of nature by colonial cultures. This invention rests on an idea of progress in which nature is construed as what one emerges from. Indigenous ancestral epistemologies hold a different understanding of the real though. The land owns us, Aboriginal Australians might say. The podcast series features talks of Andrea Borari, translated by Carolina Brunelli, Katerina Botanova with Quinn Latimer, Paulina Feodorov, Katja Garcia Anton, Davi and Dario Copanawa, translated by Sara Saltalamacchia, Nobotic with Anna Garthon Sabogal, Jeremy Narby, and Ashvika Raman. Witnesses by Katerina Botanova and Quinn Latimer. Katarina Botanova is a curator, cultural critic, and writer. Quinn Latimer, a California-born poet, critic, and editor, 
whose work often explores feminist economies of writing, reading and moving image production. Katerina Botanova is co-curator of Culturescapes, a transdisciplinary festival that takes place every two years in the fall in Basel, Switzerland. The Master Symposium was a collaboration with the 16th edition of the Culturescapes Festival, which was dedicated to Amazonia. For the festival, the book Amazonia, Anthology as Cosmology, edited by Katerina Botanova and Quinn Latimer, has been published. The book is devoted to Amazonia, its people, allies, and non-human spirits, and their myriad material and immaterial practices, from certain cosmopolitics and visual languages to past and present forms of resistance. I was thinking, when sort of imagining how, um, you know, how, how to talk about the book and what is, was the most important for me about this book. And uh, I think I would want to start with um, um, extending my utmost gratitude to all the indigenous and non-indigenous contributors to this book. And I think it's quite amazing how many people um, came and spoken and did the work and written things, actually took time um, to talk to us or to show us something which we don't know, to make the other world and other knowledge accessible to us, which otherwise would not be um, either not accessible at all or much, much harder accessible. And I think that's one of my most important, my sort of personally as a curator and as an editor, uh, my most important experience and learning through this book and um, also through the festival, because the book is a part of a festival, uh, Culturescapes, which this year is dedicated to Amazonia and this whole process of um, preparing the, 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 the festival and preparing the book, which altogether took four years, was um, actually about discovering that um, these people, um, they really, really take time to show us something which is so obvious and so, um, so much their world and around them but they, they, still, they still need to explain it to us. And I think Jeremy Narby beautifully said it yesterday that when he was telling his story about staying with Ashaninkas and when he wanted to um, sort of overstay a bit and they said like, yeah, you know, we took care of you enough. You don't know about the snakes and you don't know about the food. And this is like a simple, I mean, it's a joke, but it's also a reality because there are so many things we don't know and there are so much time that indigenous artists and thinkers and activists and philosophers and elders really take and dedicate, uh, which otherwise they wouldn't, to share that knowledge with us. Um, and like, like with uh, this work of um, Peruvian artist uh, Chanon Bensho, which made it to the cover, uh, it's also an effort. It's not, it's not the artistic gesture, which is a part of a daily life, which is not a part of the um, the necessity of daily life. It is a gesture to um, to show the, the 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 cosmos, to show the entirety of the world in a little bit our language, that we can get a little bit of access to something which we um, which we don't know. One of the artists um, who is here in the book um, in 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 a conversation, uh, Dayara Tocano. She's here in the conversation with. 
um, Rita Carelli, and Rita Carelli is actually a daughter of Vincent Carelli, who was mentioned yesterday uh, by Annette in the story about Vidionas Aldeas. So many things are actually connected. And uh, Dayara is an artist and an activist, and um, she's a part of a book, but we're also thinking to um, invite her to the festival with an exhibition, and we had a Zoom, and she said, you know, um, there's such awful things happening in Brazil today. There's so much work to do. I don't have time to create art. I just don't have art pieces. So I cannot come to the next exhibition because I have nothing to show. I have to be here. And this, this a different understanding of urgency and of the, um, your own um, identity and a role as an artist, which is never only an artist. All the the indigenous artists we, we talked to, we worked with, uh, whose work are in the book, and not only in the book, in the festival, um, they're always also activists, and they're also doing so many other things, and art is um, just one of them. And um, I think for me it was also the, the, the trip to, to make this festival and to make this book, um, kind of my own personal epistemological turn, as Jules said many times, yesterday and mm -hmm. today. And it's interesting to discover this, this, this turn in, in, your own, in your own thinking. So it was um, I don't know, a turn or a little trip between um, research, and also remember how Jeremy said it yesterday about research, right? Research is always, we use it as a neutral word, and we have to rethinking because research is always a, a, a power gesture, right? We are researching something or someone, like we're looking, we're mapping something. So in my own trip, it was a re kind of a travel from a research to, um, to, to, to a meeting, actually, or, or to a being, I would say. And um, another level of journey was between the translation and um, witnessing. And I, um, maybe we can talk about it um, a bit more in details later because mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting thing about translation in general because translation exists on many, many levels and to make such a book, you need many translations, right? Because it has to come in, in this case, in English, right? It can also come in German, but, uh, which is an act of translation. But is it enough just to trans translate the language to language? And actually, many, in many occasions, uh, it's not language-to-language -language translation, and um, this is something which you will also probably or hopefully experience tomorrow if you come to um, Davi Kopinawa's lecture, because it's a translation from um, an indigenous language, in his case from Yanomami, to Portuguese, and then from Portuguese to whatever, English, German, sort of to us. It's always a several layers, and, and somewhere in between these translations, a lot of things get lost because translation is also about the context. And it's about being able to connect to a different knowledge system. I mean, system is also a strange word here. To a di different knowledge world, which mm -hmm. is so strange for us very often, if we be honest. Um, so what can we do if we give up on translation in a certain moment and say we don't, we're not trying to attempt um, an act of translation as you know one-to-one -one experience. We bring something which we never experience ourselves, and we can imagine that we, by changing the language, we, we make it more accessible. But what if we say, 
and I, I really hope that, that what we try to do in the book, uh, we try to be a, a witnesses, because when you're a witness, you're standing next to the knowledge and next to experience, which you yourself will never experience. We will never experience what is happening in the Amazon with the Amazonian people. Neither good parts nor bad parts. We're not, we're not there, but by witnessing, we can um, not allow these things to be forgotten or to disappear. And in this sense, I think this, this book is um, an attempt of what I call an empathetic witnessing of a presence next to something, with something. Um, maybe to a certain extent, as, as, as um, Katia Garcia Anton was uh, trying to explain us yesterday, about this listening to and listening for. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, just to begin with, as, as, as we've both already said, that, um, that, we're, that we're coming from a place as sort of non-Indigenous um, allies in some sense, um, but also part of the system. I mean, I'm, I'm originally, I grew up in Southern California um, on originally Indigenous land. You know, I grew up in that kind of a settler society, as most of us have. And um, and then I I make my work as you know as a as a as a writer as a poet as a teacher as a critic and as an editor. And I think it's my work as an editor um, that not only was it <laughs> the closest to this project because I was literally the editor co-editor of this book, but I think anyway of my of my work as an editor as a work of kind of of support less translation, but what you're doing is you're supporting other voices um, and, you're, and you're finding places for them and context and, um, and you're kind of constructing a space for them, like in the space of a book. And I, I really appreciate my work as an editor because there is some strange thing when you're, when you're working in someone else's um, someone else's writings or uh, images, you somehow also are, it's like a kind of a form of uh, trans transport. You're sort of, it's a way to like enter into the other person's um, practice and their like world and their imaginary. And of course this is like, becomes much more complicated when you're not, um, when the language is not the same as your own, whether linguistic or visual. But so I've always thought about my work as an editor in this in this sense of kind of support, and I think again to um, to bring back to some things that were said yesterday by Jeremy Narby and by Katia Garcia Anton, this idea of giving more somehow than you take, and I think in this sense I think this was always like a question with this book, um, but beyond that whether that happens or not I think that. Another issue um, in a book like in a book like Amazonia, where we're trying to represent uh, voices and practices that are not often um, that are not always written down, that the traditions are often oral rather than literary, rather than written, and so I had to start thinking about um, what is you know, when you're, when you're editing a, a critical anthology or an anthology of poetry or of fiction, 
um, you're thinking really through the written word. But in this, we were thinking often through the spoken word and through a spoken language, um, and also very different languages. So we're thinking about oral testimony, we're thinking about theoretical texts by anthropologists, by critics, by art historians, um, by activists, and how do you bring all of these languages together? And I, so I was really thinking about a kind of like weaving of voices. I was trying to think quite materially. And um, so I uh, even wrote on the back that in this, um, in this book, we understand language in an extended sense as testimony, textile, painting, river, forest, animal, ancestor, song, spirit, and sacred medicine. Um, and I think this was quite important because often you begin, especially in the, in the visual art context, um, you're thinking in like very specific formats. You're thinking in the theoretical essay, perhaps you're thinking in a short story, perhaps you're thinking in a poem. But what is it to think in terms of song? What is it to think in terms of plants? And I think this goes back to this idea of perspectivism, which has come up you know, again and again in the multinatural world versus the multicultural world. And you know, perspectivism is also based on point of view. So the point of view is not just our own. The river has a point of view. The forest has a point of view. The animals have a point of view. They're watching us. They see us. Um, and so this kind of led to the idea about the construction of this book, because we were sort of thinking, OK, um, we have all these different kinds of voices, formats, people from these different fields. How are we going to, are we just going to make it in this kind of linear fashion? Like you open it, you read through it, it ends. And I think one of the ideas then was that, you know, we often think in the Western imaginary, I think I said this earlier, about the Amazon as a forest, as a forest cover, green, uh, this aerial view, which is a very also, in some sense, a colonial view, in some sense, not. Um, but also the Amazon is a river. It's a, it's a network of rivers. It's a network of waters. And these, and these rivers are indispensable to the forest. They allow it to exist. So we decided to put the book into sort of two different sections, um, the forest and the river. And these would somehow be ways to, um, to, think, to think differently, meaning that um, I think I was thinking about the river as a kind of line, as a kind of timeline um, that would also, of course, branch out. But it was something coursing. I was thinking about it visually, very much like the sentence, like the line of poetry. And then I was thinking a narrative, a narrative practices and a kind of temporal order that's like rushing forward. And then in terms of the forest, we were thinking more in terms of circular time, circular temporality. So we know that like with trees, you can kind of tell time through the rings of trees, less so in a rainforest because <laughs> there's a different kind of tree system at work, but you still can. And so I was thinking literally in these kind of like circular, almost like like you, when you drop a stone in the water and it kind of ripples outward. So this rippling outward was one section of the book. And then this kind of flowing progression, this kind of sentence was the other. But as um, Katarina noted so like poignantly in um, the introduction to the book, there was no way to separate these things. You can't separate the forest cover and the trees from the river. So these just became sort of almost like tropes for us to like enter into the work and kind of tease out different voices and, and different um, 
bodies of imagery and different kind of uh, artistic practice, different kind of activist and theoretical practices. Um, so yeah, so actually I thought maybe just to begin, just to give you a sense of, because I know we talking, ab talking abstractly about a book <laughs> can kind of take you further and further away. I thought maybe I would just read these two very short introduction um, to the forest and a short introduction to the river. And they're almost like prose poems, thinking about this idea of point of view, non-human point of view, the non-human entity of the kind of perspectivism idea. Forest. The forest is a point of view. What does it see? What is the time of the forest and what do its voices, human and non-human, animal and spirit, sound like as they ring out through its temporality? For the forest might be thought of as circular time, concentric circles moving outward and inward like the map of a tree cutting whose rings, even in rainforests, can reveal age, ancestry, wisdom, climate, calamity. But what about other kinds of forest time and their conditions? The time of resistance, for instance, and the conditions of opacity in which it might be embodied, revived, lived, shadowed, in which struggle might be given shelter. In what forms does it arrive to us? The space of the Amazon rainforest here is animal, essay, sacred medicine, monument, and testimony. It is spirit, conversation, painting, cosmopolitics, resistance, fire, flood, law, and performances, both biopolitical and ancestral. It is a cosmological time in which the past and future coalesce, their many visual and oral languages and indigenous epistemologies, their human and animal and spirit forms that regard each other by impressing upon and constituting the fluid and manifold present. So, the forest is a point of view. What does it see? In portrait, the Brazilian poet Astrid Cabral, who was born in Amazonas and grew up along the Amazon River, writes, have you ever seen a bird with roots? Have you ever seen a tree with wings? Have you ever seen a fish with a voice? She concludes, look at me. So this was the text, this was the sort of short, sort of prose text that introduced the forest section and I was really moved by this poem by Cabral because I think this was somehow you know, Katarina speaking about what we received and what we are learning and these kind of dis different epistemological systems and registers. And this is very much one, a bird with roots, a tree with wings. So this idea of form as constantly fluid and manifold and moving between different kinds of bodies, different kinds of human and animal and non-biological bodies. Um, this was very important. And then the river. River. The river is a point of view. Where does it take us? With what images and instructions does it flood us? What is the time of the river if not a line, forever breaking and branching and overflowing its margins? The river moves relentlessly forward. It is a kind of timeline, a sentence, 
a thread of water winding its way through this book, a vein as narrative practice. It is language itself as temporal order, as water, as life force. And yet, as with language, one returns to its headwaters, one's first words, spoken or damned, again and again. The river, then, is life. Here, that life takes multiple forms and signatures. Indigenous histories, as they traffic or settle along the river, and origin stories, poems and weaving, rituals and images, parables of the cosmos, memory and erasure, fisheries and dry riverbeds, water protectors and the river's violators. The river as mobility and sustenance, but also entry, exploitation, epidemic, contamination. The Amazon River conveys the long snaking history of colonial and corporate state violence against its waters and its peoples via dams, shipping, mining, extractivism, and all the destruction that attends it. But the imminent possibility of the river's ruin and the river's utter necessity for world order goes deeper into the cosmos. As the Yuja, an indigenous people from the Zingu River and the Brazilian Amazon relate in one of their myths, quote, it was in the time when the Yuja were at the brink of extinction when Senna tried to make out the river, there was no more river, and he grew furious and knocked down the sky. The sun was put out, everything cast into darkness. Thus is suggested the river's significance with its seasonal flows and stories and struggles and its immense forms of resistance. So the river is a point of view. Where does it take us? We shall see. So again, I was trying to sort of embody the kind of snaking, um, serpentine um, rhythm and look and feel of the river through the actual sort of writing and sentences. And I think this was something that also really struck me um, in many of the conversations and the oral testimonies um, by indigenous elders and thinkers and artists that we included in the book, that as I believe it was... Um, I think it was Jeremy yesterday, talking about this kind of um, this indigenous narrative making, telling a story and how circular it is and how it's not this kind of progressive from A to B to C that is constantly kind of doubling back and then inserting things. So it's a kind of, um, it's uh, these kind of refrains that fracture and change and then come back. And so I think I was trying to embody that and I think in my work as an editor, it's always important for me, both the ideas, but also like at the level of the sentence. This is, I mean, often when you're editing someone's work, you're really at the level of the sentence. You're like, you're feeling their punctuation, you're feeling the, their word choice, you're feeling if they, if they speak in long sentences or short staccato sentences. And so I think these were all these ideas and feelings and kind of methodologies that were coming into, um, into making this book. I was thinking now, listening to you about um, this um, imminent editor's um, itch to structure everything, right? I mean, we as editors, we're always trying to bring an order uh, to different narratives that then, you know, embodied in a different books by structuring. And in case of this book, the, the, I think this, this structure a bit played us yeah. because. Um, 
I mean, normally in, in, in the books I edit, it's, it's very, rarely you would have two chapters, right? You would have many more chapters. And by providing that structure, you're providing like, little insights for the, for the readers of kind of the directions of the thought. And here we stayed with two, um, I think trying to be um, kind of as wide and as sort of embracing as we can. But still, as you said, you know, river and forest, um, visually we can sort of imagine that separation, but basically they are inseparable. You cannot take the river out of forest and forest out of river. They're um, connected on multiple, multiple levels. Mm -hmm. um, and the Amazonia and you know and the book really really played us because it's not just that the, the topics you know if you try to see okay what the contributors um, address more the issue of a forest or you know, deforestation for example or more the issues of a river but when we look in the book now and we see how um, different contributors not knowing but they basically um, play with each other and reference each other and refer to each other or make connections through different, different parts. You have um, Brazilian um, indigenous thinker, Alton Krenak, who is mentioning, who is opening this book, referring to uh, another indigenous uh, leader and thinker, Davi Kopenawa, who is sort of finishing the book. And Alton is also um, talking, and I think you read that passage yesterday at the opening, about the, 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 the forest... Um, not being a, sort of a pristine um, creation of a Western imaginary, that the forest is a garden of people who live there. Yeah. But then you have, I mean, and this is this is this is um, you know an oral testimony by um, indigenous thinker and leader, and then you go to the the essay of the the researcher and an architect and an artist, Paulo Tavares, who talks about the same, but from a different perspective of a sort of a, a geological research. What does it mean to see the forest as a, as a garden of the people who live there? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the imagery also kind of correspond and, and talk to each other without knowing. You will see at the beginning in the first chapter, um, this is um, a visual critical cartography and a poetry done by um, a Colombian artist and Colombian collective, Barbara Santos, uh, Santos and collective is called Proyecto Cuenco de Serra. Uh, and then in the other chapter, you see the critical cartography done by um, a Swiss artist, Duo Nobotic. And this, this, this in, um, spoken words and the images, they talk to each other. And um, Colombian Inga chief, uh, Hernando Chindoy, is talking about from a different experience and different uh, perspective of it, but similar issues that uh, two Brazilian um, young female leaders and, art and, and, and artists and activists, Dayara Tucano and Renata Tupinamba. So from different parts of Amazon and outside of Amazon, those voices are coming together and um, start talking to each other without us editors actually, you know, we cannot keep them separated to the chapters. We're trying, but they, they still um, somehow join and find each other. And maybe just also one thing to mention, I think thinking about like, again, this like Western imaginary of the Amazon, it was really important, I think, to both of us to try to avoid the cliches, both in language and in imagery that we, that most of us know the Amazon who are far away from it as. So um, there are certain, there are certain 
images, there are certain fonts, there are certain like code words that always go along with the Amazon. And usually they have their roots in sort of colonialism and racial capitalism, but also now this sort of corporate tech uh, speak, this kind of paternalistic uh, environmentalism and sustainability that goes along with all, a lot of sort of like right-wing sort of corporate state activity. And so, and, and also just like certain images, certain colors, certain palettes. And I think it was incredibly important for us to stay away from that, to not let, um, to, to, as we saw more and more everything we didn't know, I think this is what we wanted the book to be also. Um, and I think this was actually also with the cover. Um, we specifically, we were, I mean, we were drawn to this, this work by uh, this Peruvian indigenous artist, Chon and Bencho, because it's, it's just fantastic and beautiful. Um, but also that it was like a, that it was a water image that the image was sort of like blues and greens and, and oranges. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the typical image that you associate in the West with a kind of, um, with, a, with Amazonian visual culture. And I think as we were speaking about earlier, you know, so much of the imagery that's associated with it has its roots in sort of ethnographic practices and, and anthropological practices. And this wasn't a visual regime that we wanted to support. There's a, um, a beautiful and I think very important notion which you can find in this book if you if you think and if you want to sort of know and understand more about um, not only Amazonian uh, indigenous imagery and indigenous art, but I think indigenous art in general. Uh, and it's coined by, uh, I mean in this case, because it was also coined in different contexts before, by uh, a Peruvian curator Christian Bendayan who is an indigenous um, um, person himself from a um, city of Iquitos on the Peruvian Amazon. And uh, the term is artivism. And I know it, I personally know it from a different context because um, I'm Ukrainian and in uh, Eastern European art, the notion of artivism is actually quite widely used. And then all of a sudden I uh, encounter this term, which is art and activism in a completely different context. And first I think we even had a discussion, like what does he mean exactly? And then you start going over the works and you read his text and it's quite amazing to um, start understanding that in the Amazonian indigenous context, artivism uh, is being constituted by the fact that any uh, public statement, and art in this case is a public statement, is a very strong political statement of uh, presence, of existence of rights, of history, of knowledge. Um, and one important thing about indigenous art, and you know, this cover is just one of the examples, this is an embroidery. So this is an embroidered work um, of, I think, two, almost two and a half meters high, it's quite big. Um, and um, its base is, um, because Chonon Bensho is a Shipibo Konibo artist. She comes from a Shipibo Konibo uh, community. This base is this, this patterns that are called kene. And the kene patterns are usually being drawn on the bodies of people by women with a, using a natural pigment and also being embroidered by women uh, for clothing. And the legend or the story tells that the kene patterns were given 
to humans by spirits, and there's one story saying that um, the first Canapartan arrived on the tail of a mermaid. But they were given uh, to humans by spirits to protect people, to make people um, be closer to spirits and be more like spirits. So it's a gesture of, of, a, of a kindness and empathy and connection uh, between the human world and spiritual world. Uh, but in practice, the, the, you, know, you don't need to do um, an embroidery uh, with a, you know, the story, right? This is not a piece of clothing. This is not a part of a, of a ritual. This is a gesture of literally depicting and showing uh, the world for the outsiders, for people who don't know it, because people inside know it. They know it and they see it. And Chanon herself, coming from a family um, of uh, healers, because the practice is also interesting because this practices of um, medicinal plants and shamanisms and healing, um, they are very connected and very similar to a certain extent throughout the Amazon and Amazonian indigenous communities, but they have a different, um, different names. And in Chanon's case, when I was writing a text about her and I said shaman, and she said, no, 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 don't call it shaman. We don't call it like this. This is a healer. And she comes from the community of traditional healers and medicinal plant people. And um, by learning this practice from her ancestors in this dreamlike state, and this is another, another amazing thing, that dreaming is learning. Dreaming, and on the other side of Amazon, Ailton Kranak is also writing about it, that dreaming is learning. Dreaming is, he has a beautiful um, saying that dreaming in this is the state when the human mind cracks open like a crystal and gets an access to a different um, levels, I think, of, of being. I don't remember the quote, quote exactly. Um, so you don't need art to access those levels, but we need to see something we, we don't see. And by transferring this knowledge and this vision, and also very traditional technique of beauty, putting this um, kene patterns in an embroidered canvas, um, she's telling us this story, and by this, um, doing an act of activism, of a political statement. Mm -hmm. um, and many other artists that we, we show in the book, but many other artists um, in the Amazon in general, um, they, through different ways uh, learn or sort of access this visual representation, which is not a part of, of their tradition, to tell the stories to somewhere else. And you had a beautiful introduction to um, Colombian artist Abel Rodriguez, who is also presented in the book, mm -hmm. right? And his story is yeah, yeah. quite amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to add too that, that um, like you mentioned, that even though there are so many um, different peoples with very different uh, cultures. At the same time, there is this idea that the, the visual matrix of indigenous Amazonian peoples and the way that they represent their world, there are similarities. There is mm -hmm. a kind of similarity. And so like in this, it's also exactly what Jeremy Narvi was saying yesterday, was that the, that the worldview, it's not this like kind of round planet, but it's a series of levels. And actually this is what the cover is sort of depicting through the body of the serpent, which is the river, basically. It's the Amazonian river. It's making all these different levels of, um, of existence. 
you know, and there are the, there are the animals and there are the human humans <laughs> and there's the like kind of, there's the night sky and the sun and these are all different levels of the kind of um, worldview and cosmology um, visually represented um, by this people and I think it was quite, so it's a, it's a bit of, in the same way that maybe dreaming is a form of, um, is a form of epistemology and pedagogy, um, these visual representations are also a form of, they're a form of writing. I mean, this is writing. This is like writing the like origin of the world. This is like the history of how the world begins and how it exists. And I think this was another sense of like when you're working with language in a book, to be able to somehow not just think about like the point of view of the river or the point of view of the tree, but the, the sort of essayistic nature of an image like this. And so in every sense, one had to sort of like turn things around and look at it from another side. Um, I want to read a part of the oral testimony by uh, Dayara Tucano, a Brazilian uh, artist and activist, um, whose partner, Jader Esbel, another important Brazilian artist, tragically passed away two days ago, and Vandria was mentioning. And by reading from her, well, actually, I thought that, you know, I wanted to read this before we learned that Jader was gone. Um, but especially now, I want to read um, her story, and by this also um, pay a tribute to Jader's memory and to the huge effort that so many indigenous artists and activists are putting into, into being, into not letting it go. Um, in the first course I took at the University of Brasilia, which was in translation, I learned this saying, translation is always treason. It is impossible to avoid committing treason when you are a translator because there are conceptual elements that only exist in certain understandings of the world. I grew up surrounded by people from so many places that I wound up becoming a polyglot. Incredibly, although I speak various European languages, I am not fluent in any indigenous language, since I did not have the opportunity to grow up in the village together with my grandparents. But I did have the opportunity to rub shoulders with various understandings of the world. I think that we need to feel our way to connect sensations, emotions, feelings, views, which help us to have a sort of shared understanding. But this understanding will never be complete. And I think that's just fine, because I do not believe that a translation between words is necessary. I even think it's cruel to say that people like me, or the indigenous people in contemporaneity, walk into worlds. I think it is sad to reaffirm that there is a white world, an Indian world, a black world, a Martian world, a Western world, an Oriental world. An uncle of mine whom I greatly respect, Vakia, of the Lakota people, says that there are two worlds in which we walk, the world of materiality and that of spirituality. Perhaps in the understanding of the reality of the indigenous people, he manages to weave bridges between these two worlds. And these bridges are made through an actual life experience of the practices, the knowledges, the prayers, the songs, the arts. In short, they spring from an epistemology, from what someone so beautifully referred to as a cosmovision. 
And I don't know really if translating would be the word that comes close to the sort of reality that people like me have the opportunity to live. Certainly, I can only express that which I live. I can only communicate the reflections that my estrangements and enchantments between these cultures, which so often clash, provide to me. But I do not, in any sense, position myself as a translator of worlds. I have always understood myself as an indigenous person. My name, which I received through a traditional naming ceremony, is totally indigenous, Dayara Hori. And I always knew this. The conflict, which was the fact of being indigenous, doesn't arise in childhood. But then, racism hits you in the face. Because one day, it hits you, and it massacres us. The child does not understand what racism is. And it takes us a long time to grasp what underlies this view that tells others that they are less, that they are worse, they are ugly, stupid, etc. In my adolescence, I was also not concerned with the fact of being indigenous, nor was it in the center of my existential crisis. The relationship of gender were more shocking to me, along with the wars and the social inequalities. I was always fascinated by history, and had this morbid curiosity of trying to understand the causes of all the conflicts in the world. And by studying, I gradually learned to become aware of my place among them. My personal history coincides with the beginning of the formation of the organized indigenous movement in Brazil. My parents met each other in this context. My father was an indigenous leader from Rio Negro and a key figure in the organization of a union of indigenous nations. And my mother was an ally in the struggle. Um, there were many meetings held in Sao Paulo, which led to the founding of groups that drew up proposals for laws about indigenous rights that are now part of Brazilian constitution. I wound up being born in the city among indigenous people and activists for indigenous causes, amid the uh, confusion brought on by the military dictatorship. My father was hounded politically, and until today, our family is still coping with the sequelae of that hounding, because I did not grow up near my father nor my mother. I spent my childhood in Colombia, together with my relatives um, on my mother's side. My life is like a constant return to the river's headwaters. When I was an adolescent, I imagined that my having been born in Sao Paulo was being like a little bird that was born in a garbage dump. I never identified with that city, and until today, I feel very strange there. My life and work have given me the opportunity to reconnect with my aunts and uncles and cousins and my grandfather, who passed away recently in the village to be there and to go up the headwaters where I spent the time while I was still a baby, where I paddled a canoe as a child. That is not a strange land to me. I learned how to swim in the Rio Negro. All of this involves a yearning to recover memories that were always there, but were never explicit. And that I'm an activist for the indigenous cause and for indigenous right today springs from this entire life's walk. I could have followed another path, but I had a movement of empathy and decided to delve into this history. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel. Conceived as a think tank, 
tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods, to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesa. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team Tabia Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HDK, FHNW 2022.